the readers of this book, as per the title, would primarily be Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ. Okay? Not exclusively, but primarily Jewish, new Jewish believers in Christ. They were in a tough spot. The spot was difficult for them because having professed faith in Jesus the Messiah, they would have cut themselves off from really the, the, the nation of Israel in their relationships with their families, in uh, all of the social and religious framework of Israel, they would have cut themselves off, and they would have been cut off. Well, you know, that's a, a difficult challenge for anyone to be living. At the same time, on the other end of things, they would have been subject to the same persecution by Rome as all the Christians were at the time. So these poor Hebrew Christians were stuck on both ends. And as we read, the Christian church was really truly their only true family at this point. And so the words to these Hebrew Christians come as encouragement um, in their faith, encouraging them to hold fast in such difficult circumstances and times. Um, Because some of them, in fact, seem to have been on the edge of letting go of their confidence in Christ, their faith in Christ. Last week taught, uh, taught us here at the beginning of chapter 3 about the critical importance of this holding on to our confidence in Christ. And Jerry actually quoted, if you look at chapter 3 there, the, the first verse in the chapter, he says, the writer says, therefore, holy brothers. So he's talking to Christian brothers, Hebrew Christian brothers, you who share a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Remember Jesus, whatever you do. And then down in verse 6, he says, the reminder is that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So there's a strong encouragement to these dear brothers and sisters to hold fast to Jesus. As uh, we come to the passage for today, what he's going to do is unfold for us uh, a teaching that comes really in three sections, and you can see this on your outline there. There's a lesson to remember, there's a warning to obey, and then there's a sin to confront, and these unfold for us as we go through. Why don't we just begin by reading the text together? So let's read beginning in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's just pray together. Father, we ask your help today that you would be our teacher. And as these words uh, span back millennia and move forward millennia to the 21st century, we pray that you would speak to us today as well. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Well, as we begin uh, this little section, um, a couple of things. You read verse 7 there, and it says, Therefore the Holy Spirit says. Um, Let's take that for what it says. The Holy Spirit spoke as the writer of the Psalms, as we find out later, David, was writing these words. But the Holy Spirit speaks every time we open our Bibles. He's speaking to us. And what I'd like you to be thinking today is that As we open the scriptures and as God speaks, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me in the 21st century. And so as the Holy Spirit says, and now let's listen. He begins by saying, today, if you hear his voice, today. What day is today? Yeah, today. (laughs) The idea is wherever you are in the span of time, The Holy Spirit is speaking, and he says, today, listen, hear my voice. Now, um, what follows in this first section, verses 7 through 11, is a quote. It's an extended quotation from Psalm 95. The writer of that psalm, and as I said, we're going to find out that's David, um, wrote this section um, as a warning in Psalm 95, and the writer to the Hebrews actually cuts and pastes right out of Psalms and puts that message in the middle of his encouragement and warning to the Hebrew Christians of their day, okay? And so what we have in verses 7 through 11 is an extended quotation from Psalm 95, and it's really important for us to understand that because it's really the heart of this entire passage, Jewish people would have uh, known and understood this reference immediately and uh, the story behind it. The writer says that these first century Jewish Christians, the readers, um, he says, brothers, you're, you're on a journey. You're on a journey of faith. And we know it's not easy. And just remember now, as we read, says the author, that God's people... Israel, your fathers, have been through this before. Uh, You're going to need to remember a lesson that occurred in their lives a thousand years before David wrote and more. Remember the lesson in their lives and don't make the same mistake. Do not follow that bad example. All right? 
Now, just so you know, the Old Testament background for verses 7 through 11, it's really important to understand, just to, to understand what's being said here. Um, and you're familiar with the large story of the Exodus. And so, under Moses, the Exodus had taken place. The Hebrews, as a nation, had crossed over the Red Sea, all of them, adults, children, animals, elderly people, everybody, across the Red Sea. And they reached the other side of the shore there, and that's the Sinai Peninsula. And as they begin to make their way in and south on the Sinai Peninsula, on that really rugged, arid, desolate land, they find out what you would expect. We're running out of food, and we have no water. Got a little problem here. And so uh, God provides. He Initially, he begins to provide for them their needs as they make their journey, but over and over again. And apparently, as the water supply got lower, they would get more agitated. They'd come back after Moses and say, hey, Moses, great idea getting us out of Egypt, but now you've brought us here to kill us? That's actually their words. You bring us out here to kill us and our little ones and our animals? We have no water. And um, so what they did was they, they fought, they argued, they disputed with Moses. And uh, probably the story that's being referenced in Psalm 95 that's quoted here has to do with that famous incident where Jesus calls Moses and Aaron, and he says, gentlemen, you take that, take that staff that you have, and you go down, and I want you to strike the rock, because from that rock is going to flow water. And Moses goes down to the people. They're giving him a hard time. And Moses gets so ticked off that he says, you want water? And he, he strikes. Actually, God tells him to speak to the rock. I'm sorry. Got that wrong. Speak to the rock. But Moses gets so ticked off, he just takes the thing and goes, boom, just hits the rock. Water comes out, and the people are happy. God's not happy. And Moses ended up paying for that, that sacrilege uh, by not being able to enter the land himself. But in that story, um, in that, that little portion of the story, um, David earths this, this uh, warning to, to God's people, okay? And so let's look at it. Verse 7, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, now the key thought here, and it's in your outline, is the centrality of the heart. God is interested in our hearts. And God says, now listen, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did back there in that rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 40 years. You know, it's easy to have a bad day spiritually, you know, or a bad week. 40 years. And what happened during the course of that 40-year period was that God's people were in a steady process of hardening their hearts in unbelief against the very God who was providing for them every day. And they saw him do that. But instead of becoming softer towards their God, they became harder and harder and harder. This is a land... Um, 
that was promised. By the way, there's a word here that, that is really important. You look at verse 10. God speaks and says, therefore, I was provoked with that generation. Provoked is an okay word, but it really doesn't catch kind of the real sense of what was being said here. And one of, one of the best Hebrew scholars uh, that we often refer to said, a good word for that translation would be disgusted. It, it catches the, the sense of God's, God can't be frustrated, but his sense of uh, um, being repulsed by the behavior of his people. Therefore, I was disgusted with that generation and said, they always go astray. Where? Where what does it say? In their hearts. This wasn't some intellectual theological problem that these people had. They knew God. They had seen him act. But they were going astray here in their hearts. And God was disgusted with their, their behavior for that 40-year period. And so his, his uh, conclusion at the end of that time is, verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now that's, that's bad news. That's sad news for these people in that generation of God's people. And so the question there is, well, what is, what is this rest that God talks about? Um, there are two senses to that, that rest in the Bible. One of them is obvious, and it has to do with the rest that would, uh, they would experience in the land that God was bringing them to. That's a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15. God promised him that he would have a place, and his people would have a place. And then again to Moses, that Moses' role was to lead God's people to that place. And it's, it has this lovely phrase attached to it. God calls it my rest. Rest sounds pretty good anytime. But uh, God, God's rest was ultimately to where he was taking his people. And so it has to do with the promise of a land by God. And so he says, look, your, your fathers were on a journey to a place of rest themselves under Abraham. And uh, their unbelief and the generation that is written about here in the Psalms, their generation were not able. They were prohibited from entering into this land of rest because of 40 years of hardness of heart toward their God. An entire generation. Um, it's pretty stark. Fell in the desert, says the scripture. Okay? So... Um, Again, there, there is a, let me mention the other sense of rest, by the way. There's another larger sense when we read in the scripture about a place of God's rest. It's not a geography. It is rather a person. And the readers of the Hebrews were uh, on, a, on a journey to a geography, but we all are on a journey as well. We're on a journey to a greater rest, a greater land. And our hope is not in a geography, brothers. Our hope is not in a place, but our hope is in a person. The person who is leading us to what is that greater hope, 
that greater rest. It's a lovely thing that is mentioned again by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, who, as he talks through and writes through the experience of the patriarchs and their faith, these poor people wandered all over the place, beginning with Abraham. God said, Abraham, I've chosen you. You follow me. And he does. He doesn't know where he's going, and he never really landed. And Hebrews 11 says he lived his life in tents. Now, camping might be good. If you like camping, bless your heart. I can take camping for about two days, and I'm ready to go home. These people lived generations in tents. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. And Hebrews 11 says this, For they were looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Okay? They were waiting for God to fulfill his purpose in them moving. And they were waiting for a city, not like Memphis or L.A. or someplace, but a city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. It says they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, and they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a rest. We're on that journey. God has prepared for us as God's people an eternal rest, and we're following him there. We're following Jesus there. So it's not a hope in a geography, but our hope is in a person who's bringing us there. All right, so we've seen a lesson to remember. The writer says, don't do what your fathers did there in the wilderness. And then we come to the second section, verses 12 through 15, and this is a warning that they need to obey, okay? Starting with verse 12, he speaks directly uh, to these early Jewish Christians, And again, brothers, as we read these words, remember, he's speaking to us, okay? They were initially to those Hebrew Christians, but he's speaking as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Listen to what he says. Take care, brothers. There's a sense of tender compassion in the voice of the writer here. He's not coming after them hard. He's saying, brothers, take care. Take care. So there's that sense to it, a tender, passionate concern. And what he says is, lest there be any among you with an evil, unbelieving heart. He says, brothers, be really careful. You've got to guard your hearts. The same issue as what was happening back in the wilderness with God's people. It's an issue of the heart. Take care, brothers. And... Guard against, and this is, these are scary words. They should be for us. Guard against an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. Okay? An evil, unbelieving heart. And um, then he goes on to say in verse 13, if you look at it, but exhort one another or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today. Now, let's just stop here and and hit a couple of points. 
when the writer calls them to take care that you don't develop an evil, unbelieving heart. I think he meant for us as the readers to take that to our hearts. He's speaking to us. And there are things about our lives that allow us to kind of walk around and look good, you know. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Everything's fine. How y'all fine? You know, I never heard so many fine people until I came to Memphis. <laughs> what God says is, watch it. Watch it, Buster. Watch it at the level of an evil, unbelieving heart. You can look fine on the outside. You can come to worship regularly at Second or wherever you worship. And you can come to Amen Bible Study, and you can do all kinds of good stuff. And God says, watch your heart, partner. Heads up for that evil, unbelieving heart. And that said, he says, now, let's get positive here in verse 13. Exhort one another daily, every day. Now, um, the idea is, first to the first century Christian Hebrew brothers, you all need to be in the process of holding each other up. You need what only the church can be in your lives right now. If there was ever a time not to think about leaving, but to hang together, it is now. And the encouragement is exhort and encourage each other every day. And that's what we're about, guys, as God's people in God's family. Um, to hold each other up on this journey. It's the crucial value of community in our lives. You know, that's why we need to be involved in some kind of a small group. It's the, it's the value of corporate worship in our lives. Something's going on in, cor- in a corporate setting that happens nowhere else, as Pastor George said last week. You know, there are things happening there in our souls that can only happen when we're with other brothers and sisters. And um, so it's the importance of true community in our lives. Brothers, I got a couple of things here because I I really think this is the heart of of what I wanted to emphasize today in the teaching. Um, Isolation. Isolation, brothers, is deadly. Okay? Our faith, there's something about being a guy, okay? And there's something way deep down in us, and I don't know where it came from, it's just there. But we want to be our own men, you know? That old rugged individualism thing that people talk about Americans having, forget the American thing. We're all that way, okay? And guys want to be their own man. And... uh, the danger of something like that is that it leads to isolation in our lives. Um, and when we come to our faith, many of us are just reluctant to say too much, to get too verbal about our faith, okay? Because it's personal, you know? I truly believe in Jesus Christ as my only hope and my Savior. I believe in his word. I believe, I believe. But that's me. And it's not my job to go around 
and dump that on other people. That's the thought, okay? It's private. And brothers, here's the deal. I'll say it again. Isolation is dangerous. And your faith and my faith is personal, but not private. Do you see the difference? Our faith is personal in that every person in this room has to come to that point on his own feet before God. Okay? It, it is personal. You can't believe for anybody else. So that's true. But it's not private. Okay? There's a point where you need, and the writer says, you need somebody coming right up in your life and saying, do not give up. And how's your heart? Is there any evil sin floating around in there? That's not comfortable. We go, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. Thank you. We're not going there. And the scripture says, you better have somebody in your life exhorting you, encouraging you, coming right up and saying, stand up, keep moving. Okay? We need those people. And the problem with us as men is that we are expert compartmentalizers. Okay? Here's, this is, here's another thing that I don't know where it all comes from, but man, is it true. Uh, and I won't even talk about the difference between men and women on this point. All right? But we as men like boxes in our lives, you know? Little boxes. And so we have boxes for every dimension of our life. We have a box for our work life, okay? We have a box for our finances, um, all kinds of boxes. We have boxes for all of our interests, a little box for my golf and my duck hunting and my da 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 Those are my boxes. And we have a box for uh, our family. You may have a box for your marriage, a little box. You may have uh, a box for your friends. And worst of all, you may have a box for your spiritual life. And the deal about our boxes as men is that what's in those boxes doesn't necessarily have to transfer to any other box. So what happens in my work life has absolutely nothing to do with my family. And what happens in my spiritual life has nothing to do with any of them because that's private. It's in the box, okay? And so the, the fallacy of all that is that your spiritual life was actually meant to infuse every other dimension of your life. And so if it's in a little box someplace, what you're going to have is isolation. And dear brother, things are going to go bad if it stays in that isolation, okay? And so the encouragement here is... Um, Nothing healthy is going to happen in isolation, and we need to step aside from the boxes a little bit and be willing to go outside of ourselves to other brothers and say, hey, you doing okay? I've been, I've been just kind of watching you, and it looks like you're kind of down. What's going on? You want to talk? You need somebody to come to you and ask those questions. Hey, man, where you been? Haven't seen you around. You okay? Let's go have a coffee. That's good stuff. It's so simple, and it seems superficial, but it's exactly what the writer is saying here. You need to come 
and exhort each other. And how often do you do it? What's it say? Every day. It's a habit. It's not just something you do as a one-off, but man, I'm looking for an opportunity to encourage people. That kind of an attitude. Encourage brothers along the journey. Um, Guys, when we talk about these things, um, moral, every once in a while, you'll look around and you'll have maybe a friend or someone you know or a religious leader or people in public life, as we've seen the last week or so, who somebody flips the top off their box and there's all kinds of garbage in there. Okay? And uh, what that indicates is that blowouts in our lives, moral blowout, spiritual blowout, usually they're not something that happen real quick. They've been happening under the lid of the box, and in isolation, bad stuff has been going on in the life of a guy. And when you flip the top off, or he blows the top off, and he just blows himself out, what you know is, one, somewhere along the way, that guy was isolated. And two, that thing was in process for a while. Okay? It didn't just happen today. Um, this, this life is a long journey, and we're not meant to make it alone. Let me read you something. I I picked up a book that I've been waiting to read um, a week or two ago. It's called Make Your Bed. Okay? It's written by Admiral William McRaven. Admiral McRaven served in great distinction for 37 years as a Navy SEAL. He commanded at every level. He retired as a four-star admiral. Last assignment was commander of all U.S. Special Operation Forces. This guy had seen a few things, including, you know, the takedown of Osama. Um, He gave a commencement speech at the University of Texas in May of 2014. And in this talk, he gave 10 points um, about little things that can change your life and change the world. It's brilliant stuff. Some of you may have seen the video. This video went viral, 10 million viewers, okay? And somebody was smart enough to say, hey, what, could you write those things down, please? And so that's what he did. There's this little book, it's 125 pages. Folks, you ought to go get this thing, make your bed. But here it is, chapter two, his second point. You can't go it alone, okay? If you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle. Okay, here's how it goes. Let me just read you a little section. It says, I learned early on in SEAL training the value of teamwork, the need to rely on someone else to help you through difficult tasks. Those of us who were tadpoles hoping to become Navy frogmen, uh, to to those who uh, were tadpoles, a 10-foot rubber raft was used to teach us this vital lesson. Everywhere we went during the first phase of SEAL training, we were required to carry the raft. We placed it on our heads as we ran from the barracks, across the highway, to the chow hall. We carried it in a low-slung position 
as we ran up and down the Coronado sand dunes. We paddled the boat endlessly from north to south along the coastline and through the pounding surf, seven men, all working together to get the rubber boat to its final destination. But we learned something else on our journey with that raft. Occasionally, one of the boat crew members was sick or injured and unable to give it 100%. I often found myself exhausted from the training day or down with a cold or a flu. On those days, the other members picked up my slack. They paddled harder. They dug deeper. They gave me their rations for extra strength. And when the time came later in training, I realized and returned the favor. He turned around and helped the other guys. That small rubber boat made us realize that no man could make it through training alone. No SEAL could make it through combat alone. And by extension, you need people in your life to help you through difficult times. It's a great illustration. And the story goes on. This is fantastic reading. But the point is a biblical point. We're not designed, we are not purposed to make it alone. We need somebody to help us paddle the boat. We really, really do. And that's what the author says. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Um, Let's just keep going, all right? By the way, take, take my advice and go get that book. Make your bed. Good stuff. Okay? And then finally, point C there under number two, the deceitfulness of sin. When we, when we read about this in the life of these Hebrew believers, it's not just them, it's us. The Holy Spirit's speaking to us. And he says, watch out. It might be in your heart. And uh, that deceitful uh, sin in our lives appeals to us constantly by lying to us, making us rationalize our behavior and our thinking, and um, by making us feel like, you know, really, God is letting me down at the end of this day. I feel like God's letting me down, and um, I really deserve better. I've heard those, that kind of talk from guys who are about ready to leave their wives over the years. I don't think that was the Holy Spirit speaking. Um, I say, I've heard this kind of talk um, from guys over the years who, who are that close to blowing out their marriage. And what they say is, uh, you know what? I don't think God has really given me what I need to be happy. And uh, in the end of the day, I deserve better. I think God wants me to be happy. So I'm leaving her, and I'm going to find happiness. Guys, I wish I had a, a buck for every time I've heard that story. What that is is the deceitfulness of sin speaking to your heart. That's what it is. Um, I, a, a person who's very dear to me, somebody I, I care about a lot in another city, in another state, um, did something unusual in his life uh, not long back. 
he quit his job. He just, out of the blue, he just quit his job, gave his resignation. And it was like, whoa, um, what are you going to do? Oh, I don't know, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I think it's time in my life to find something new. And I thought, well, that's weird. Yeah, that's kind of irrational, but okay. Two weeks later, his wife comes home from work. He's standing in the driveway next to his car. She gets out of the car. She says, what's going on? He pulls out a stack of three-by-five cards and begins this. He's reading off of three-by-five cards to his wife. And he said, bottom line is, he says, you know, I don't love you. I haven't loved you for a long time. I need to find some happiness. Um, so I got to go, and I got to go now. Bye. He gets in his car, door slams, out of here. That's it. And he went to another city, to the apartment of a woman who was waiting for him. All right? Now, somewhere along that line, he was isolated. It didn't just happen that day. There was a long process of percolating there. And what he had done is he was listening to the deceitful lies of sin for a very long time. And you know what? There's a process that uh, this passage actually describes for us. And we have a little diagram there for you in your, in your outline. Because the words in the section that we're reading right now actually lay out for us a little process, if you look at it. And so it begins in, in the little diagram there, first with the heart. And it's in our heart that we begin to listen to those uh, deceitful lies of sin in our lives. And then it, we begin to internalize those lies. And then we become, as we internalize the, internalize the lies, we become increasingly hardened in our hearts toward God and his word, bitter. That hardness turns to unbelief, and ultimately there's a blowout, and somebody forsakes and turns away from the living God. That's what that process is being described right here in this passage. And the writer says, brothers, exhort each other. Brothers, take care. Brothers, don't let your heart become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Guard your hearts. You know, sin in our lives, guys, and I, I'm almost done with this harangue, but it's so important for us to think about. Sin in our lives is deadly. It is aggressive. It is metastatic, if you will. We have a lot of doctors here, and those are familiar words to, to medical people. What if you went to the doctor and you heard him use the words deadly? Stokey, what you have there is deadly. What you have there is very aggressive. What you have there is metastatic. And I'm getting scared every time he opens his mouth. And so my question is, well, Doc, what are we supposed to do here? The only hope for you, Stokey, is radical treatment and surgery, okay? That's your only hope. And my answer is, let's get on with it. What, what time today do you want to cut on me? Let's get on with it, okay? Sin in our lives, brothers, sin in our lives is deadly, 
It is metastatic. It is aggressive. And if you get scared by the doctor using those kinds of terms, how about the Lord himself saying, watch your heart? Because those things can settle right there in your soul. So, again, our hope, and if you look at verse, uh, verse 14 there, he says, we've, not come, we, we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If our hope of rest is not a hope in Christ, he says, then we're never going to enter it. All along this journey and all the way down to the end, if our hope in rest is not our hope in Christ, we're not going to enter it either, along with these people that are being exhorted. You know, we're, we're so grateful that God has told us in his word that it's not up to us to make it to the end ourselves, but that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He started the work in our lives. He's the one who will finish it. Our privilege, our opportunity is to follow Jesus down that path all the way. Okay. Last point, and this is, a, this is a real quick and simple one. Look down to verse 16. There's a sin to confront here. And let's just read the verses. It's, it's very self-explanatory. Three questions. He just said, in summary, to my dear Hebrew brothers, three questions. One, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Answer, was it not all those who left Egypt and, led, and were led by Moses? Yeah, we knew that. Okay, second question. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Here's just a big summary. Answer, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Question three, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter the rest, but to those who were disobedient? Okay, three questions. And we've seen these things as we walk, as we walk through the, the passage. But the bottom line is there in verse 19. So we see that they were, they were unable to enter into the promised rest of God because of unbelief. Okay, that's the big summary of this section. It's not mysterious. They didn't enter the rest because of unbelief. The bottom line was their sin, um, their failure to confront their sin as the first generation out of Egypt for 40 years in the wilderness, all right? So we just have two, on your outline there, we just have two kind of final statements. First, the Israelites under Moses fell in the desert because of unbelief. Not because they didn't get along with Moses. Not because they had intellectual questions about the wilderness. And in the, the end of the day, they went through that process and they ended up at the bottom line of unbelief. And God said, no, you can't enter my, my rest not trusting in me. Second point, only our, true, our only true rest is not in a place 
but in a person. Guys, we've got to remind ourselves of that all the time. Our true rest is not in a place, but in a person, Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. We sang that song. The good news, there's good news here, though. You're going, Stokey, it's kind of a bad day here, you know. Lighten up a little. There's actually some good news in here, okay? And the good news has to do with the fact that in this passage, we see it here, we see it there, we saw it last week, and we're going to see a whole bunch of it next week. So come back. The good news in this passage is that Jesus brings us to that gospel rest. He does it. And we get there as we follow him. You know, Jesus is so great. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, can it be any more straight up than this? Come to me. He's talking to crowds of people. But he says, come to me. Every one of you who are tired and weighted down with the issues in the sin of your life, come to me, all you who are weary and weighted down, and I will give you rest. The gospel rest that the people of God have always been moving to. Jesus says, hey, you tired? You weighted down? Come to me, and I'll give you gospel rest. Okay? Because <laughs> in me, he says, you'll find rest, not for your body. You're not going to lie around in some hammock for eternity. You're going to find rest for your soul. And that's what we're all looking for. Okay. And some, some guy sits here and hears these words and reads the words of Christ and reads the words to the Hebrews and says, well, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm religious enough to, to pull this off. And Jesus says, right, you got it. You're not. And stop trying to earn what you can't buy. Okay? Well, the guy says, well, okay, I don't know. Actually, sin has messed up my life really bad. And I don't know if I can recover from this. And Jesus says again, look, I took your sin and I nailed it to the cross. And I gave you back in, a, in place of that my righteousness. That's what you have as a follower of Christ. And then somebody says, maybe along with the Hebrew brothers. You know, I don't know, I don't know if I can make it all the way to the end. Sometimes it sounds like it'd be a lot easier just to kind of turn back. And Jesus says, okay, listen to me again. I live the perfect life that you can't live. I died for you. I rose again and opened the door for you. Now, you follow me. Just follow me. That's the deal now. You follow me, firm to the end, all the way into my gospel rest. That's the gospel rest and the promise of the gospel. And it's in a person. And the person is Jesus Christ.